You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, May 4th. I'm Jack Farley. We've got Ash and Ed standing by. I know they've got a lot to say. But first, let's go to the story that's on everybody's mind. Saturday's Berkshire Hathaway's shareholder meeting. This year held virtually in an empty auditorium. In short, the meeting was a debate between Warren Buffett and Warren Buffett. The first Warren Buffett started with a very long series of prepared remarks about American history and the enduring promise of the American dream, and why it's always a bad idea to bet against America. But then the second Warren Buffett came out swinging with some very sober talk about how businesses and investors should be cautious, that there are so many unknowns, we don't know how long the coronavirus will last, how consumer behavior could be irreparably altered as a result of the shutdown. The second Warren Buffett dropped a bombshell, disclosing that he had sold all of his airline positions At one point, Berkshire Hathaway owned roughly 10% of the four largest airlines in America, Delta, Southwest, American, and United. Everything gone. Now, some investors and analysts were expecting a significant rebalancing, but no one but the closest insider thought that Warren Buffett would liquidate the entire position. The announcement, in turn, has sent airline stocks into a tailspin. The other surprise that the second Mr. Buffett had to share is that he's sitting on roughly $140 billion worth of cash and cash equivalents. So we have the first Mr. Buffett waxing poetic, as he always does, over how U.S. stocks will always outperform U.S. treasuries. But at the same time, we have the second Mr. Buffett disclosing that Berkshire now owns over $94 just in T-bills. It really is remarkable, the dichotomy that we're seeing. As always, Berkshire Hathaway shareholders and investors at large hung on Mr. Buffett's every word. But many left the meeting scratching their heads about which Mr. Buffett to believe. The first Mr. Buffett? saying to never bet against America, or the second Mr. Buffett, who is yet to put his money where his mouth is. And with that, let's go to senior reporter Ash Bennington with our managing editor, Ed Harrison. I know they have a lot of thoughts about whether we're exiting the hope phase and entering the liquidation phase. This is, of course, through the framework of Real Vision CEO, Ralph Powell. I, for one, can't wait to hear what they have to say. There are a lot of financial puzzles to solve, definitely. Uh, Guys, take it away. Thanks, Jack. Great coverage on Warren Buffett. We'll have more to say about Mr. Buffett in a few moments. But first, it's Monday, May 4th, 2020. I'm Ash Bennington. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We're here with Ed Harrison in Washington, D.C. Hello, Ed. Good to see you again, Ash. How are you? Very, uh, very busy news day, isn't it? 
Yeah, it is. And uh, in, in a very weird way, I have to say, because as uh, we saw the market sell off in the Asian and European sessions, it really was looking kind of grim in terms of the data flow, in particular, J. Crew, the bankruptcy there, uh, oil prices down. But the S&P eked out a win uh, for today. And it does make you wonder about uh, where the market's headed in, in the month of May. You know, uh, sell in May and go away. Is that really the moniker? Well, nobody's going away this May. <laughs> That's definitely the case. You know, let me tell you how I was looking at it, um, because I'm looking at this as the uh, the third phase that we were talking about, the beginning of the third phase of recession. You know, Raul was talking about the liquidation phase, the hope phase, and then the insolvency phase. We actually did get two insolvencies today. The first insolvency was uh, from struggling retailer J. Crew. And that was something that was very much related to a private equity deal. We also got uh, Gold's Gym just announced recently that they are uh, filing for Chapter 11 as well. So that's the second uh, bankruptcy. Interestingly, another uh, private equity deal that was actually Danish private equity for the Norwegian company, uh, Norwegian Air, they were able to stave off bankruptcy because there was a debt for equity swap there. So what we're seeing, I think, uh, in terms of this, the the start of this third phase is we're seeing that you know the Fed isn't going to be there for every single company that's around. There will be bankruptcies, and that uh, it really depends on what the creditors say, how willing they are uh, to work out deals, whether or not these companies are liquidated, whether they're restructured, and what happens. Well, there's so much to pick up on there. Uh, Talking of private equity and retailers, uh, what about Sears uh, coming up potentially next? J.C. Penney, some other big names in the space. I believe Neiman Marcus is struggling. There are a lot of stores struggling right now. Sears, uh, excuse me, J. Crew may have been the first, but will it be the last? Yeah, it won't. I mean, it's a canary in the coal mine. The way I'm thinking about it is that it's a very difficult space already. uh, And then you have the capital structure on top of it. So the people in the capital structure, uh, you know, with the worst capital structures, they're going to go to the wall first. And then the question becomes, based on coronavirus, will companies that would not have gone under in a uh, garden variety recession also teeter and go under as a result? So all the names that you named were companies that we would have said right from the get-go uh, they were going to be in a world of hurt. A lot of them, actually, private equity, Neiman Marcus was also involved in that. Uh, you had the CPPIB that was involved in that deal. And for me, I think it's interesting to, you know, Neiman Marcus will be an interesting deal to look at for me uh, because CPPIB, obviously, they're supposed to be a pension company that is long term money. What we saw when the pension companies in uh, and, and the funds in Denmark were invested in Norwegian Air, they got together with the state, you know, gave them state aid in Norway, and they took a debt for equity swap. So they looked at themselves as patient money. Even though the the economics of Norwegian Air are are poor, they decided we're going to ante up uh, to keep this thing from being liquidated. Uh, Will the same thing happen with with Neiman Marcus? It'll be interesting to see. Boy, that's a triple threat. Capital structure problems, business model problems, and cyclical economic problems. 
Yeah. I mean, the coronavirus makes it all the more dire. Uh, just think about the likes of um, Macy's, um, um, Mays, the the uh, the head of that company, Hudson Bay, as an example, which owns uh, Saks, are those companies that would eventually become in jeopardy. I think when you get to that level uh, of security, companies that were fairly well positioned ahead of time, that's when you start to see the bailouts come into play. So these companies, they're not going to get the bailouts, but uh, the, the further we go up in terms of the actual uh, balance sheets of these companies, we're going to start to see the bailouts. Hey, you know, you did some also some interesting analysis uh, this morning in the Credit Write Downs newsletter. You were looking uh, at small and medium sized enterprises, and you turned to Sweden uh, to get a sense of what you think may be to come here in the states. What are you looking at there, and why is it so relevant to what we're facing now here? Yeah, so I mean, the way that I was framing it is that Sweden, in terms of their lockdown response, they represent what we're coming to, what we're going to end up seeing once we exit our more stringent lockdown. They're in a less stringent lockdown. And, uh, you know, you can go to bars and restaurants, the whole bit. So even if after one or two phases in the likes of Germany and Austria, they're still not going to be to the level that the Swedes are in terms of the, uh, the type of openness of their economy. Yet, when you look at the sectors like the ones that we're talking about right now, but particularly the travel sector, sector hotels and restaurants, it's just been a, a, a massive uh, hit that the bankruptcies have been rolling in in a big way across Sweden and particularly in Stockholm. Uh, so they're seeing uh, bankruptcies in the restaurant and hotel business that are six times the level this year that they were last year. And there are many companies that aren't going to even open. You know, the tourism is not going to be coming in from outside. A lot of seasonal businesses aren't going to open just because of that. So you have the big and this is only the beginning. So you have the beginning of a mass wave of bankruptcies in Sweden, and they've been best positioned in terms of this particular downturn. So if that's happening there, you can definitely think that when we open up, it's not going to be off to the races. It's going to happen here and elsewhere in Europe as well. Yeah, it sounds almost like Sweden is the, the model for the new normal when the new normal arrives. And maybe the short answer is it's not like the old normal. No, I think that, you know, I'm looking at it, uh, you know, there are different uh, things. People talk about the V-shaped recovery, the U-shaped recovery. Then, of course, there's the L and the W-shaped recovery. I, I think that your base has to be somewhere in the L to W range because the reality is on the back side, even if you had a U or a V-ish style recovery, you're not going to get to 100% straight away. And, that, and then you're going to have this tail uh, that that comes off at the end to get back to where you are. You know, the, the sort of best case is what I would call a jobless recovery, where you have people who are not consuming in the same way for 12 months, 24 months after the, the initial outbreak. And it's only over that slow grind upward that you get back to where you were. Jobless recovery is a best case scenario. It's not something we're used to hearing. No. I mean, you know, obviously the first jobless recovery in the United States in 1990-91, that was a, you know, that was the first time that we saw a non-V-shaped recovery. Even the double-dip recovery of 80-82 was yeah. considered to be relatively V-shaped. But we're talking about the 90-91 and post-recovery as 
sort of the what we're expecting. It's not necessarily the end of the world, but that that is the uh, that's that's sort of a best case scenario. Well, you know, talking about reopening and where we're headed right now. So there's a report today coming out of the New York Times. The New York Times secured some uh, official documentation from FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Office, uh, from the Trump administration, and the data that they've uh, managed to uh, get their hands on suggests that the death toll is going to reach 3,000 per day in the United States by June one. Uh, this is based on those internal documents, which is roughly double uh, the current number, or nearly double the current number of 1,750 deaths per day in the United States. Additionally, the Trump administration figures forecast 200,000 new cases of coronavirus uh, per day by the end of this month, up from about 25,000 cases uh, today. So an eight-fold increase based on this official forecast, uh, internal official forecast, I should say, uh, from FEMA. That's pretty horrific. The, I think the second part is the horrific part because obviously there's a lag between you know people getting the disease and then the potential deaths that result as uh, from that. But I think that it points to at least from the United States perspective a um, a less than best case scenario, what I would call a uh, base or or worst case scenario for the U.S. Because when you think about lockdowns, I think of them at a minimum in terms of people's habits, people's fears uh, leading the government. It's not the government says we do X, but rather that we do X and the government reacts as a result of that. Governments and policy, they're always reactive. They're never proactive. And so when you look at uh, South Carolina, as an example, when they opened up, no one came uh, came out. It, it was it was still relatively speaking a ghost town. So to the degree that you do open up and some people uh, get in there and you have the numbers that you're talking about, it's going to mean a, a more apprehension and it's going to mean you're going to have a, a, a move back to a shelter in place mentality for the people in those states. So I think that those numbers speak to a lot of downside risk on the economic front for the United States. Well, you know, to pick up on the downside risk and the apprehension that you just mentioned, the other story that I saw today uh, was uh, coming out of the World Health Organization, uh, an official envoy for the WHO uh, named Dr. David Nabarro uh, came out and said, and I I think it's worth reading the quote, uh, quote, there are some viruses that we still do not have vaccines against. We can't make an absolute assumption that a vaccine will appear at all, or if it does appear, whether it will pass all the tests of efficiency and safety. And then he went on to say, uh, it will be absolutely essential that all societies everywhere get themselves into a position where they are able to defend against the coronavirus as a constant threat and to be able to go about social life and economic activity with the virus in our midst. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? I mean, uh, what, what's your take on that? I, I'll tell you what my take is, because I was reading an article from early April about the New York City uh, response to the 1918 flu pandemic. And I thought it was right. very interesting because uh, theaters were open, you know, cinemas, and also schools were open in New York. And the health, uh, the, the head of uh, of health in New York City was 
pilloried by certain people for that. But uh, he said, you know, people were living in tenements and actually having them go to schools uh, where it was brighter and airier was probably better than having them in these very close to cramped quarters all the time. And, there, and at the theaters, at a minimum, you could give them more information about how to act in public and what to do and so forth. But the thing that I found the most interesting was that the virus and its symptoms were immediately apparent in 1918. You knew as soon as someone was sick, that guy's sick. And right. so therefore, you knew what you needed to do. Here, you're in a completely different situation because it's clear that there are a lot of asymptomatic transmissions that happen. And that's where the biggest problem lies for me with what you just read. Yeah, I think that's I think that's spot on. That really is the key: is the asymptomatic uh, transmissions that are happening because so many of the people who have uh, the virus remain asymptomatic for such an extended period of time. You know, that said, in terms of Dr. Nabarro, if there's one thing that we've learned, and I'm not generally known for my bullishness on this, uh, is that uh, medical professionals, especially medical professionals in senior governmental advisory roles or quasi-governmental advisory roles, are intensely cautious in the language they use. And maybe he's just setting an expectation. Hey, guys, don't expect there to be a vaccine uh, 12 months uh, from Tuesday. This may be a long haul. That said, I guess we can hope for a better case scenario. But look, he's putting it out there. It is a possibility. There are other viruses we simply do not have vaccine for. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, it points to downside risk. It points yeah. to a slow recovery. So the question is, is uh, in, in the face of that, why do we see the move that we saw today? I, I you know, I think that uh, there's there are one or two reasons. One reason is is that Asia and Europe were playing catch up to the United States over on Friday. So you know, uh, not all of those markets were open, and as a result, they were playing catch up with the with the down move. The right. second is that uh, it was oil related to a certain degree. And, you know, you and I, we've been talking about oil as a proxy for demand. I think a lot of people are starting to look at oil in that way. So the oil was sold off overnight, but it rallied so that even WTI closed up with a 21 handle today. That's a sign for some people that uh, the worst is, uh, you know, is not going to happen, that it's going to be slightly better than they think. And I thought it was interesting that the Norwegian Krona uh, rallied on the news of oil actually going up. So there you have a, a specific tie for the overall economy, how people are looking at oil as a proxy to not just markets, but also currencies. And I think that that was partially responsible for why, you know, the negative news that we saw with regard to Warren Buffett in particular and with regard to uh, J. Crew isn't having a uh, an impact. Yeah, you know, you articulate a very clear and, and specific case for what might be driving these markets, and that sounds reasonable to me. I would also add on top of that the, the sort of grander macro uh, assessment, which is, hey, if you're looking for U.S. equity markets to price forward risk, to effectively discount risk that we see in the real economy, you're probably looking at the wrong place, right? I mean, Markets react based on positioning factors. They react based on leverage. They react based on uh, triple witching. They react based uh, 
you know, on, on and largely, especially uh, the perception of global central bank liquidity and the fiscal response. So there's not going to be an efficient pricing mechanism that's going to tell you on a day-to-day basis, like a gauge on the dashboard, what's happening in the global economy. But you teased uh, Mr. Buffett again, and we should probably get back to that. What are your thoughts about Mr. Buffett's comments on uh, U.S. airlines? Yeah, I think that his comments, not just about U.S. airlines, but also his uh stance, his investment stance generally, you know, hoarding cash uh, and not being able to buy any companies and then absolutely jettisoning every single airline stock that he had speaks to where he sees opportunities and where he sees pitfalls. He wasn't getting rid of the U.S. banks, by the way. You know, he he didn't jettison them, but he did get rid of the airlines. I think what it says to me is at a, a just sort of a general level, what he's saying is that the market is not uh, sending any overall signals uh, to buy. You know, I'm, there's nothing out there that I see that that screams buy. Uh, but when it comes to hold or sell, I'm going to hold my U.S. banks. I'm going to hold my bank stocks. I think that they're well positioned or positioned well enough that I'm going to hold them. But airlines, actually, I'm not going to hold them. I'm going to sell them. And right. this is coming from a guy who's a long-term investor. So what he's saying is there's nothing to happen in that sector. What does that mean for me? It means the exact same thing I said before with regard to the likes of uh, you know Hudson Bay out uh, Hudson Bay Company or the likes of uh, Macy's uh, holding company um, going south. That you're going to see some bailouts. You know you're not going to have the U.S. airline industry, which I think a lot of people would consider to be a uh, strategic interest go uh, chapter 11 without bailouts happening. So we're right. going to see airline bailouts before this is all over. Yeah. And with that said, uh, all of the major U.S. airlines down today over 5%. I think UAL is the best of the bunch uh, off uh, off 5.11%. Uh, 5 so it has not been a pleasant day. Uh, for airlines. You know, I would also pick up on it. You were talking about uh, Warren Buffett's general advice. Uh, you know, my former editor and old buddy at CNBC, Jeff Cox, did a deep dive today on uh, on Warren Buffett's analysis of the Fed, and it's worth reading. Here's a quote directly from, from Warren, and it picks up on precisely the points that you were making about uncertainty. Quote, we're doing these things that we really don't know the ultimate outcome to. I think in general they're right, but I don't think they're without consequences. And I think they could be of extreme consequences if pushed far enough. But there would be kind of extreme consequences if we didn't do it as well. So, you know, Warren Buffett is in the, in his very sort of gentle grandfatherly way is kind of putting the Fed on notice, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, um, I think what he's saying is, is, is that uh, there's much worse to come going forward. And uh, the uncertainty surrounding that uh, tells me that I need to reevaluate, you know, what sort of margin of safety I have, which is the typical Graham Dodd sort of thinking. His right. thinking is, if I'm going to hold this over the long term, I need to be able to buy with the margin of safety. And if I'm going to hold this investment over the longer period of time, then, you know, I have to know that it's not going to fall to zero. Um, he's saying, yes, bank stocks, American Express, uh, you know, all of the other, my core holdings, Coca-Cola, I'm not selling. But airlines, uh, they're going to go to zero. And the, the fact that they, they only fell 5% kind of tells you where the market is right now. They're saying, okay, this is what the Oracle of Omaha said, but 
um, you know, we're, we're willing to take a bet that uh, maybe there's a bailout and, uh, and equity isn't wiped out in, in that process. Yeah, and maybe uh, maybe uh, you know the market reaction to the first Warren Buffett story we covered is in relation to the second, right? That people are thinking about those stocks only off five percent after truly dismal news, based on the fact that they think that there's a Fed put behind it, or there's a fiscal put behind it, or there's some effectively government intervention that's going to prevent them from falling off the face of a cliff. You know, the uh, we, we have a jobs number that's coming out later on in the week. The thing that I, I'm thinking about in relation to that. And, and also in relation to what you're talking about, uh, people looking through the news, is what the FT was talking about in terms of the second wave. Uh, all of this is sort of packed in together. So we're going to get the, this jobs number. I think that the average number uh, is minus 21 million. That's what people are talking about, which is an unheard of uh, negative number in the history of that, that series, which goes back to 1948. But the question is looking forward when you think about the gold gems, when you think about uh, the Norwegian heirs of the world, when you think about the J. Cruz, what, are the, what does the jobs picture look like? And basically what the FT is saying, it looks a lot like it has looked in Sweden on an ongoing basis over the next six to 12 months. So 21 million will eventually become 25 to 28 million. And the question therefore becomes, how much intervention can you get to forestall very negative outcomes uh, to the downside in that in that uh, realm? Is the Fed put good enough over that next six to 12 months to forestall, you know, the the worst uh, in infection of the financial system, right? And the number that you're referring to is the employment situation report, Jobs Friday, coming out of BLS. Not uh, to be confused with the uh, 30 million print that we've seen on total unemployment claims over the last whatever it is seven weeks or so. Yeah, and by the way, you know, in terms of that uh, unemployment print, there's one. I have one little pet peeve about that. The uh, the jobless claims is is that everyone keeps quoting the 30 million number when really the 30 million number is a seasonally adjusted number. Right. And if you if people were to look at how they do the seasonal adjustment, it's it's a simple multiplication by an, a seasonal adjustment. Uh, uh, multiplier or a division. And really, these are such massive numbers that there's no seasonal adjustment going on here. It's a right. massive event. And the actual number is 27.8 million jobs that we've lost over the last five weeks. It's not the 30 million because that, that number comes from adding on the seasonal adjustment. I just want to say that because uh, it, it, it goes to you know how deep we are, you know, the, we are doing the analysis at at Real Vision compared to uh, what you might see on uh, on you know the average network. Yeah, that's right. A lot of these numbers, especially the economic numbers, get very complicated. The you know rates that are adjusted um, and things like seasonality and annualized adjustments they get they get complex, and we're really enjoying doing that. I think it's fair to say doing those adjustments and providing some clarity and some framework to think about it. One more for you, uh, Ed, before we head out here. Uh, California, I know you've got a, a keen interest in public finance. California is now the first state to borrow from the federal government to make unemployment payments. Uh, I think we may be saying about California what we've said so many times before, the first but probably not the last. Uh, California borrowed uh, roughly $350 million uh, ad, after uh, receiving uh, a significantly larger uh, allocation. So uh, 
What do you expect to see there, and what are the macro ramifications of states borrowing from the federal government to make these claims? It, it, it goes. It fits into the model of, of everything I've been saying. So if you think about, we've gotten the three stages. We had the liquidation phase. We had the hope phase, which we're leaving. Now we're in the insolvency phase. We've already started with the insolvencies. During that phase, uh, the numbers that created the problem for California will, will creep up. So everything that's happening in California will happen in other places. And so there'll be a continual need for more liquidity, more fiscal support. And in the meantime, uh, the question becomes, how much from a policy perspective are people willing to put up? Are the Rand Pauls of the world, are the Mitch McConnells of the world willing to make those backstops without uh, you know, the consequences? The consequences being you know, bankruptcy for states and a liquidation for, for companies. So I think that we're going to hit the day at some point during this bailout phase when um, it's it's not going to be just about insolvency leading to bailout. It's going to be about insolvency leading to liquidation and downside risk uh, reappearing. So w- today is sort of a, a, a denouement, if you will. And it's been a positive denouement in terms of the market going up. But I don't think that this can go on uh, for the entire six to 12 month period that I'm talking about, during which uh, you get this drip, drip, drip of uh, more jobs lost, uh, more companies going under. So yeah. unfortunately, I have to be negative uh, because that's the situation. Yeah, and maybe the maybe the question is, uh, I, I think we both remember quite clearly that uh, that vote that failed uh, on the on the floor of the House uh, on September of two thousand eight to pass a bailout package. Maybe the question is, uh, how much uh, can Republicans in Congress uh, tolerate in the way of pain before they have to yield to uh, to the pressure to actually continue to disperse the money? You know, the the question I have with regard to all of that is, how does that look compared to Europe? Just to go back to the the question that we were asking a week ago, you know, when I was somewhat bullish on Europe, when you tell me that the numbers, the internal numbers from the White House are so dire, yet Europe is is releasing uh, the lockdown, to me, that's a dichotomy in terms of economic outcomes that suggest some degree of uh, over, uh, you know, uh, what I would say, Europe outperforming. So right. over the medium term, it may be better to be in Europe than it is in, in the U.S. I, I just want to reiterate that point. We'll see if that actually comes out to pass. Well, you know, I'd call back to what you said earlier, that unfortunately, uh, sickness and death from the disease is a lagging indicator. These, um, you know, these states are just beginning to reopen now. We really don't know where that data is going to be. Uh, so it is going to be a, really a wait-and-see a wait-and-see kind of situation. But I will end this one on a positive note because we actually have some good news here today. Uh, the CEO of the Swiss, Swiss pharma conglomerate, Roche, uh, was out today uh, saying that he thinks it's very likely uh, that people who test positive for antibodies to COVID, meaning they've been exposed to the disease, they've either been sick or asymptomatic, uh, but they have the antibodies to the disease, they're very likely to be immune to the virus in the future. This is something that's still been very much an open question. There's starting to be some data that's coming out that's starting to confirm it. This is one that I think we can all be hopeful about based on the data confirming. 
That that is, I, I hadn't heard that. Uh, for me, I'm very hopeful because literally tomorrow I'm, I'm talking to my doctor about taking an antibody test to find out uh, where I am, and uh, because I might uh, I might have the antibody based upon uh, you know contacts that I've had, and hopefully uh, that answer is is true because that will give me a certain peace of mind. Yeah, we both think there's about a 50-50 shot that we've already had this virus, which we'll probably cover on another episode. Uh, but thanks for joining us. And as always, uh, an incisive analysis of what's happening in markets. Thanks, Ash. It was great talking to you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.